When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have our second edition of Stock Up, Stock Down, or Stock Hold. Our look at where things stand right now in the WTA singles rankings. Who are the players that are overranked? Who's underranked? Who's sitting pretty as we head towards the home stretch of 2023 and the start of a new season in 2024? Of course, if you're looking for the ATP edition of this show, all you have to do is scroll down on your Great Shot podcast feed. Our dear friend Gil Gross joined me yesterday to talk about the most fascinating players right now in the ATP singles rankings. Today, we have the WTA edition for all of you tennis fans. And joining me for this exercise is a man who is now our most listened to guest in Cracked Rackets history. That's right. I ran the numbers. Of course, all of you know him essentially as a co-host of the Mini Break Podcast, editorial producer for all things Tennis.com and Tennis Channel. And yes, as we learned late last weekend, the newest member of the Ashlyn Kruger bandwagon, it's our dear friend, David Kane. DK, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. First try on the intro. There was a little bit of a discussion if I would record before or after this podcast. DK said, let me be a part of it. I put on a show for you, my friend. How are you feeling today? I was admittedly stocked down on your ability to make it through the <laughs> intro on your first try, but I'm glad you I'm glad you proved me wrong. I mean, I don't know if anyone should be coming to us for financial advice anyway, but <laughs> given that we work in tennis, but I'm glad to be here either way. No, it is always <laughs> a pleasure to have you. And yeah, look, this is a very fun exercise. It's as Gil described it when I pitched this to him, he goes, that's the most Gruskin conversation I could possibly think of. And so I brought on our two ideal guests to have this conversation, people who get what I'm trying to accomplish with this exercise. Now, I got to get us you- apart as usual, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> but conversation for another podcast. Yeah, for, for every podcast. And again, I know he's not going to listen to this, so he can't even contest. Is he the most listened to guest in Crack Rackets history? He won't even know I made the statement. Um, But a shout out to you who, when I suggested this exercise, you said, so should we value it by ranking? And that was not going to be my initial value for this exercise. But once you said it, I go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And let the record show when I said that to Gil, I did not give you any credit. And he immediately was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good idea. And I was like, yeah, I totally thought of that one myself. But again, here on the podcast, I will offer the credit to you, DK. And that's what really matters. So thank you for joining us here today. Do you have any pent up Kruger thoughts or Guadalajara thoughts you want to get off your chest before we rock and roll? 
I mean, it's a little unnerving to think that I'm coming up with Gruskin ideas. That we need. <laughs> I may be in more need of an off season than I realized. Um, but I do have to, I do have to bump on the idea that I've just joined the Ashlyn Kruger bandwagon. If there has been a bandwagon, I have been the conductor of said bandwagon because I interviewed Ashlyn Kruger when she made her U.S. Open debut in 2021, while we were still doing Zoom interviews, when I was interviewing Ashlyn from my apartment on the Upper West Side, and she was on a Zoom uh, computer over in Queens. And I asked her her favorite music. And I said, I I led with, I am an elder millennial, please pick something that I would know. And she said, I love Tame Impala. And over (laughs) Zoom, plus me not knowing who that was, I just went, "Mm, who? And she went, oh no, in that accent. So it's, um, yeah, I'm glad to see that her tennis is 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 going better than her her musical taste. That's for sure. No, her weapons are ridiculous, and you know, as soon huge as tennis, Clet huge Lewis game. Write, and whenever Clet Lewis writes about someone, you know, they have my attention. She was an Orange Bowl champion. She was the USTA Girls 18 San Diego champion, which is how she got that wild card into her first U.S. Open, where she was so fortunate to have the chance to speak with the one and only David Kane. But just to say, Colette Lewis lays down the tracks for bandwagons yeah. to exist. Yeah. She is the one working on that railroad. No, it's it's just a different thing. We're all on the Colette Lewis bandwagon, and the different stops she takes is how we learn about players. It's like, oh, this is the Tiafo Kozlov stop, and we learn about this generation. Oh, this is – was... <laughs> It's very Weezing and Sillyville, a reference for some do... of you elder millennials. <laughs> I think I've even told you this before. I don't remember if it was on or off mic, but – my roommate, Michael, shout out to him, who was subject to seeing a lot of challenger action from 2014 to 2017. Every time we speak, he works in the line. So, dude, how's Bjorn Fratangelo doing? And that's like the one name he knows. That's it. Bjorn Fratangelo is the update he always wants, which brings a smile to my heart because it means he really was watching. Um, anyways, yes, shout out to Colette. Shout out to Ashlyn Kruger. Why is she a good transition into today's exercise? Because we're not going to be talking talking about Ashlyn Kruger. There are a lot of players. Way to bury the lead. Well, <laughs> well, it's because there are a lot of obvious stock up players right now on the WTA tour because there are a lot of young players making move. And Ashlyn Kruger is currently at a career high, number 73. You watch her weapons, her ability to hit that backhand cross court as a winner, just outpower her opponent. You're just like, yep, I'm in on that. She's 73. I think she's someone we both think will obviously go higher. Layla Fernandez at 74, former slam finalist, has won WTA Tour titles by virtue of making the round of 16 in Guadalajara. She's back in the top 65 already. I think she's an obvious one. We could have a Mira Andreeva discussion, but I put her in this category. Linda Naskova at 41, another obvious one in this category. And then I had Clara Tawson at 76 in this category as well. So, again, there will be some obvious absences on this list. We can get into some of the honorable mention at the end of what will inevitably be an hour-long show. I promised Gil 45 minutes. We kept it an hour. I'll try to do the same for you, my friend. I will say again— I like the list. I sent DK 15 names, I want to say, is what I whittled it down to. He made five cuts from there. So we have our 10 players, the most fascinating stock up, stock down, stock hold candidates on the list. From made some the- preemptive stock downs just from life. They didn't yeah. even make it to this podcast. <laughs> So all that is to say Belinda Benchich isn't going to be on the show. I think for those of you who have listened to us for a long time, that was an editorial decision made by DK. His right certainly afforded as the most listened to guest here at our crack, on our Cracked Rackets podcast. The number one name I have on our list 
I think is a name that obviously, you know, some people will hear this name and they'll think, oh, this is such a hot take. Like, she's the hottest thing right now. It's fresh off a final in San Diego, now in a round of 16 in Guadalajara. You know, so- Sonia Kennan, former Australian Open champion, back all the way in 2020, obviously reaches the French Open final that year, has dealt with all sorts of different injuries subsequently since then. Really struggled trying to work her way back on tour through her first 12, 16 months of action. But, you know, watching Kennan play in San Diego, where for those of you who aren't aware what Sonia Kennan was able to do, she reaches the finals there, wins over Navarro, Potapova, uh, Kudermatova. This week wins over Zhao Kalinina to reach the round of 16, where she's got a fascinating matchup with Yelena Ostapenko remaining. Uh, of course, all of this started when she qualified at Wimbledon, beat now U.S. Open champion Coco Gauff in round number one on her way to the third round. Sonia Kennan has really picked it up these last two and a half months. And with that progress, she's now back up to number 49 in the live rankings. Obviously, this is someone who's won a slam title, who's made a different slam final, who's put together an 18-month stretch of top 10 tennis. It's also worth noting through all of those injuries, through everything else, she's still only 24 years old. And that piece feels particularly relevant given, again, a lot of her issues have been injury-related, and we know the level she's capable of playing. All of that said, DK, she's pretty obviously a stock up, right, as we move forward into 2024. Where are you with Sonia Kennan? I admit at the U.S. Open, based on her match against Daria Kasakina, I probably would have been more inclined to just say stock hold maybe even trending stock down because just her inability to make her way out of that match against the Kasakina who was serving 60 mile an hour first serve, 62 mile an hour first serves. And just the way that Kasakina's spin was just completely choking Kennan's ability to generate any kind of pace off of both sides. It just felt like I was watching a flummoxed Anna Kornikova. I love to bring up Anna Kornikova, but it was that was the first time I really saw the similarity between Kennan and Kornikova on the court. Just the once you're out of once Kennan is out of a specific strike zone, how unable she is to come up with a plan B and figure her way out of rallies and is can be quite error prone. However, this win streak that we're starting to see her put together this fall, she's currently up a set on Ostapenko and Guadalajara or Guadalajara. Um, <laughs> but um, I think the the more matches she strings together, she is a player who rides on momentum, needs a ton of confidence, and as anyone would to play that kind of a tennis. But I think her in particular really thrives on feeling like she belongs and that she is one of the best players in the world. And I think for the longest time, she has not felt that way and her tennis has has followed. So I think the fact that she's getting some win back in her sails, made a final last week in San Diego, played uh, Krajika Fatuff in three sets in that final, now doing well in Guadalajara. I think she's setting herself. We've seen this. We've literally seen this movie before, which is we saw her have a phenomenal fall in 2019 and then go into Australia and win it. So I think based on what we're seeing her do at the end of this season, I, I would expect big things from her. Now, maybe not slam big things, but a, a really big uh, charge from Kennan heading into 2024. So I would say stock up. She had a big 2019 overall winning a title in Hobart to start the year finals in Acapulco. I think another title in Mallorca in the summer. And then to your point, yeah, a title in uh, China, I believe in Guangzhou, uh, 
round of 16 in Beijing and uh, then as an alternate got into the Shenzhen finals. Obviously, yes, from there she goes on to the massive 2020, but she put together 49 and 23 season at age 20. And she's still just 24 years old. You just, you don't have a lot of, again, what's the list of players with slam titles right now that are active on the WTA Tour? Actually, there are a lot of first-time champions out there because it has been a funky era, but she has to be included on that list still. And again, she was Jabur before Jabur, that ability to hit the slice, to hit the lob, to beat you in ways that make you uncomfortable from a game-style perspective I think there's still a place for that for Kennan. I think she's moving so much better over the course of the past few months. Finally healthy, extending through the ball more thoroughly when she is pushed into the corner. Again, her ability to blast that backhand line or beat you to a spot with her forehand has always been special. I'm buying stock in Sonia Kennan. The level I have seen from her in person in, uh, when I uh, I believe I saw her in person, right? Um, looking at the 2023 numbers. No, when I didn't see her in person. The what I have seen from her. We'll try it again. Leave it all in though, West stuff. Over the past two weeks, while watching, again, my brain mush. Seven out of eight weeks on the road. From what you've seen of Sophia Kennan on television. <laughs> yes, in person on television. She's been excellent. Like She really has been. She gets a win over Ostapenko. Now we're really talking because that's the sort of signature scalp maybe she doesn't quite have yet on her resume other than Goff at Wimbledon, but Wimbledon is still Wimbledon. I'm starting to believe in Sonia Kennan. And again, she has nothing to defend through the first half of the season. Yeah, a semifinal in Hobart to start this season, but didn't reach another quarterfinal until San Diego. She has the runway to get back top 30, top 25, and I think she has the level as well. So I think it's an obvious stock up. Yeah, I think this is – I'm glad we're starting out on a positive note because yeah. based on some of the players you put on this list, I don't know how positive this podcast is going to be. No, I'm well, kidding. I'm kidding, ladies well, and gentlemen. <laughs> let's stick on that positive note because I think this is one of the more fascinating cases in terms of obviously the delta between ceiling and floor – you mentioned Sonia Kennan right now, up a set on Yelena Ostapenko. Let's go to Ostapenko next. She's had a fascinating season. You look for Ostapenko here in 2023, 34-18 overall, that 65% win percentage, second best of her career, trailing only that 2017 season where she obviously wins that French Open title. By the way, the, that win total she has now this season, 34. It's the second most she's had in any season in her career, trailing only that 2017 season. You look at the numbers, she's been top 15 returner all year long, breaking about 40% of the time. Her 69.4% hold percentage, that's still outside the top 25 amongst top 50 players, but it's a career high for Yelena Ostapenko, better than she was in 2017. And obviously there are the two massive peaks. When she beats Goff at the Australian Open earlier this season, she beats Fiontech at the U.S. Open this year. She also won a title in Birmingham, semifinals in Rome. Uh, there have been some serious highs for Yelena Ostapenko this season. Certainly a few lows. Second round loss at Wimbledon, disappointing given how well she was playing on the grass going into it. You know, early exit for her in Montreal wasn't a really a big factor at all during the sunshine swing. I could argue that the best we saw from Ostapenko this season, DK, might have been the best we've ever seen from Yelena Ostapenko. And even though she's been in our lives for a decade now, Ostapenko's still 26 years old. Hypothetically, this should be when she's entering her prime. 
16 in the world right now in the rankings, according to ELO rankings at Tennis Abstract, which again, as Gil and I discussed, measure who you play and what the score in that match is, not where you play and what round it's in like the WTA rankings do. Ostapenko's 11th right now. That's higher than her WTA ranking. So again, by virtue of the numbers, she is undervalued. Is this a one-off year? Do we see more consistency? I know it's been this story for a decade. You've been covering all of it. Where are you with Ostapenko heading into 2024? It's funny because it does feel like we're getting a more consistent Ostapenko this year in a way that's makes you think that even bigger stuff is yet to come because she hasn't really had that peak tournament yet. You know, she had two, she has two quarterfinals at slams where she played two really phenomenal round of 16 matches, one against uh, Coco golf in Australia, and then one against Iga Shrantek, uh two weeks ago at the U S open. But still when we've seen Ostapenko catch fire in the past, she's making semis, perhaps making a final, perhaps winning a title. So I think that that would give one hope that, she is her floor is increasing and yet we still haven't really even hit her ceiling. I mean, the thing that always gives me pause a bit for Ostapenko is just fitness. I just think that she could perhaps be fitter. Um, as much as her game is not necessarily built around athleticism, I think she has been fitter in the past, and I think that would certainly serve her well. Um, you know, just to prevent injuries. You know, last year she was talking about an injury that kind of derailed her because she had a good start to last year as well, winning the title in Dubai and then fell off. So I think if she can get into the fitness that we were maybe seeing in 2021 combine that with the results we're seeing now i think that 2024 could be a good good year for her it's hard to say stock up for ranking because i feel like she's already getting quite high and i think the only thing that would that would may, mean that she's ranked higher is she'd have to like you know make a slam final or really like start putting together some big consistent results not just consistent for her consistent for like a top player and i don't know if we're there yet with her so i if we're saying top 15 I would say stock hold. Yeah, it it so that's what's so interesting because where is the ground to gain for her? Two slam quarterfinals is pretty darn good, although it's worth noting she's the second round both Roland Garros Wimbledon. Obviously, she's won the French Open. She wins a Birmingham title this year. We know how good she can be on the grass courts. Can she duplicate what? You make the quarterfinals, that's eight wins, nine. Can she win 10 matches at slams next season as well? I think so. I think it's a pretty good bar for her to clear. Now, outside of that, again, has a Birmingham title to defend, Rome semifinals, not much outside of that. Will this be the year, you know, 2024, you see week in, week out consistency? Because we know what the peak level is. We've known it for more, you know, more than half a decade. I do think she's been better at cutting out the first round exits so far this season. In fact, you look at her record so far this year, Fun fact, she's lost one first-round match. It was a Montreal match to Jennifer Brady, a match where it's worth noting she won a six-love set. Mm-hmm. That's massive growth for Yelena Ostapenko. And, you know, again, even by virtue of just duplicating that next season, I think she'll stay in this range because, she again, 12th in break percentage, career-high hold percentage, and the power is just so replicable match in, match out. Now, when the consistency not isn't there, we know it can be a problem. And yet still, so far this year, you know, again, of her 18 losses, I want to look real quick here on Tennis Abstract, how many of them were in three sets? Because I think there are a lot of them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of her 18 losses this season 
in three sets. Even when she loses, there are those 15-minute stretches where, again, she just has that elite first time in the pod, Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club Power DK. I think all I think her wins had been in three sets as well. I think yeah. I saw a stat that said this was her this week was her first straight sets win since Wimbledon, perhaps. Does that make any sense? Of her thirty-four victories, how many of them have been in deciding sets? Seventeen of them. Half. Yeah. So. I mean that yeah, live by the sword, died by the sword. Um Which is what she was doing when she won RG in twenty seventeen. I think almost all the matches were in three sets. Yeah. So the question is how replicable is it seventeen and ten record in three sets for Ostapenko? Look, she's in a position. If she's ever going to make a top 10 push again, it feels like 2024 is kind of the window for her to do it. I'm going to bet on it. I'm going to say stock up. I'm buying stock on Yelena Ostapenko. I think she could, if anyone's going to disrupt the Iga, Sabalenka, and I guess you have to throw golf in there now, ecosystem, Rabakana as well. Isn't Ostapenko the one you always circle to do it because you know what her ceiling can be? For sure. And I think an intangible element that we haven't discussed yet is I, my sense from the last couple of weeks, and maybe it was, you know, accelerated by the story that came out about the the Aliona Ostapenko superfan, uh, my good friend Jonah, uh, who Ostapenko gave a ticket to and, have, you know, was taking selfies with her throughout the tournament. I, I sense there has become a, a groundswell of just positive attention towards Ostapenko. I think she's becoming if not a sentimental favorite, a bit of a camp fan favorite, which I think she was to a certain degree, but I think that's the familiarity with her is, is kind of overriding maybe some of the less savory elements of Ostapenko that we've witnessed over the years that have made people perhaps a bit more dismissive of her as one to root for. And I think people are starting to root for Ostapenko more. They're, they're seeing her behavior with fans and that's making her a bit more of a positive figure within the sport. And I wonder how much of that energy is fueling her in any way, because I, I think she is someone who likes attention. I think everyone likes positive attention. And I think the more of that she gets, I wonder, like Kennan, to a certain degree, how much that might help her in 2024 as well. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, she's always been a bit of a cult hero, no doubt about that. And I suppose that cult has just become mainstream, like so many have on X. Like an ironic hero turned perhaps yeah. in like an unironic hero. I think yeah. people used to root for her ironically, and now people might actually like Ayana Stepenko in some corners of the tennis verse, which is yeah. interesting. I mean, again, it's just different than anything else you get. And I, I always appreciate that because I think monotony is the death of sport. You want these, you want different personalities. You want different game styles. You just, those differences are what makes everything intriguing. And again, Ostapenko certainly always stands out. So two stock ups to start. Here's where things get interesting. And I wanted to include this player because not only has she been probably, well, she'll be on the list of breakout stars of 2023 in an interesting way, even though we'd seen her in a slam final before this season. She wins her first slam title in Wimbledon. She's currently sitting at six in the world, top five in top 20 wins, top five in top 10 wins, top five in overall wins is 24-year-old Marketa Von Drusva. Currently sitting at six in the world, Von Drusova overall on the season, 40 and 13. One of six players, top 20 in both hold and break percentage. She's sixth in ELO rating. She's sixth in the points race. Everything has her at number six right now, trailing Sabalenka, Sviantek, Goff, Rabakina, Pagula, in whatever order you deem fit. The question for the 24 year old DK is. Is there more to scratch this? Is there more there for Marketa Vandrosova? Is there a world where she becomes a top four, a top three player that contrasts to 
the overwhelming power. Uh, you know, again, just to fill out, I suppose, the complete, complete spectrum from Vondrosova to Sabalenka, you see a little bit of everything in the top four or five that have emerged. Is there more there? Could she compete for world number one status? Does she dip back a bit in 2024? Where are you with Vondrosova? I can see a scenario in which she's ranked about the same next year, but it's a result of a more even point spread across the board. Dare I say a Pagula type season? Like she puts together a Pagula 2023 in 2024. Yeah, because I think what was mo- even more impressive, I mean, obviously the the Wimbledon run was insane, but I think the fact that she was able to back that up and play as consistently as she did through the US Open made me think that perhaps this wasn't going to be a one and done, but I think the issues that I have with Vondrusova are similar to which that which I have with Mukova, which is that they are both easily injured. <laughs> and by the end of the US Open, you know, Vondrusova had an elbow issue. Um, Mukova had an issue around her. I might be spoiling the Mukova discussion that, that may be yet to come, but I think both of them left the no, open. She's not on the list anymore. Okay. So I think I'm yeah. at, I'm at, no, I don't think I down I didn't downvote her. I didn't stock down her. Um, but I both of them have have in the past been injured quite to quite to their detriment to the point where they were both playing a challenger together, famously seeing each other at the same challenger tournament and going, what the hell are we doing here? This is crazy. And now, you know, fast forward a year and one is a slam finalist, one is a slam champion. Um, so they certainly have tremendously high ceilings. It's just the floor. I don't know how much the floor has gone up because there, the injury issues persist, but I think the consistency issues perhaps are no longer as much of an issue. So I think now it's just health because we've seen Mukova be consistent throughout the season. We've seen Von Trusova be more consistent. And now if they can stay healthy, I think that will be the game changer. Because again, talk about confidence, talk about momentum. Theirs are the, also the kinds of game that with confidence and momentum, they can do some pretty phenomenal things. So I think that's, um, in terms of ranking, again, she's ranked already quite high. So it's probably a stock, another stock hold for me. But um, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll see, we won't see a total drop off from her next year, provided she stays healthy. Yeah, I think the thing that I enjoy so much about Von Throsva's game is it just checks off every box you could want. She belongs in the discussion for most tools in the toolbox on tour. She belongs in the discussion for best movers on the WTA tour. She belongs in the discussion for best improvisational skills on the WTA tour. She can just do a little bit of everything. She can take away what her opponent wants to do best, whether it's with her slice, the drop shot lob combination, which she's clearly been doing since the girls eight, with just lethal effect. Uh, her ability to find angles, get outside the ball, her ability to smack a backhand line. And, you know, again, the fact that that translates across surfaces. She wins a Wimbledon. She's made a French Open final. She's now made a quarterfinal of the U.S. Open. And, you know, again, Quietly did make round of 16 in both Miami and Indian Wells, so there are some chunks of points she'll have to defend early in the season. Now, she lost second round Roland Garros this year. You feel like that's a place where she could pick up some ground, maybe a little bit stronger clay court season as well, provided she is healthy. Could she be world number one? I mean... No. Here's the thing, but, like, <laughs> but does she she matches up well? Like she again, I think she handles the pace pretty well. Of I know Madison Keys got her good in that Slam final. I don't think she was at her healthiest there, but she won freaking Wimbledon. And hmm. I mean, he, I mean again, she's so solid on the clay. She's so physical on the hard courts and can hit through them. I don't think her power is compromised. It's. Just I mean, the Wimbledon final and the U.S. Open final two very interesting case studies because one, you have a tremendous, uh, you have a test, uh, a testament to Von Drusova's mental strength, which is she, sure. you know, 
served out that match <laughs> and mm-hmm. against a player who was very nervous, but also one who could have come back if there had been some nerves from Bondrusa, which we saw from her in the semifinal. And then at the U.S. Open, you know, yes, Madison was playing some phenomenal tennis. Yes, Vondrusova was injured. I would have liked to have seen Vondrusova win that second set. That would maybe made me feel more confident about her long-term abilities to maybe compete for the number one ranking. I feel like that was she should have at least taken that second set. She had I don't know how many break points on uh, keys in that second set in that one game in particular. So I mean, I, I still think she's limited by her lack of power against, a, you know, a Svantec, a Sabalink. I would have wanted to see her beat one of those players already to make me think that she can compete for number one. If she'd beaten Iga in Cincy, maybe I would have felt, okay, this is someone who may be wanting to compete for top three, top five. But I think for her, if she's still top eight at the end of next year, that would be a great success for her. Yeah. I. That is true. You do think if status quo for Von Drosvo, she could just hold the top eight season, make another tour-level finals, and even do it without winning another major title. It does prove she belongs in this group. And so there is some perspective of what qualifies as a stock up for Marketa Von Drosvo. This is why I'm stock up on her. And I think it's to your point there perfectly. I just don't see her dropping out of this group. I don't see her dropping out of this discussion. I think her. I feel confident that she's going to retain her place in the top eight. I feel pretty good about this group moving forward that, you know, again, oh, you're making But is that not wide. a hold then? Am I not understanding the rules of my own Gruskin no, idea? No, 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 no. You're right. It should be a stock hold. For me, why I'm skewing it a stock up is, first of all, why am I going to beat you in our beginning of the year drafts of teams, which we have let go to the wayside? It's because I had her on my roster, and so I dominate you because she's gone from fringes top 100 to six in the ranking. So win Alex. Um yeah leave that well west off keep the whole fart noise in yeah exactly (laughs) um and the description of what it was because they weren't sure beforehand i just i think it's stock up because i believed she was in this tier entering the season now we all get to see it and did i see a slam title coming no but she's a top 10 player she has that sort of skill set can do a little bit of everything i think she belongs in this tier of the conversation that's why i have her stock up is because why she stock up heading into 2024 it's because people will now in every slam be like well let's look at marketa von Thrusova's draw who we know is always dangerous at these slams and that qualifies as stock up moving on to our next case here and we're going to go a little bit faster through these next three because they're players we've talked about pretty frequently here on this show whenever we've had dk that said i think they had to all be included let's start with number seven on jabur injuries have been a massive part of the story this season you look for jabur she's 28 and 13 overall in the year that with only 41 matches she's kept her spot at seven in the rankings that she's eighth in the points race right now and given Madison Keyes' loss to Emma Navarro last night, Jabur's barring an Ostapenko title, which she was already down a set in her match today to Kennan, Jabur's probably going to the tour finals. It feels like our eight is downright locked right now. DK, where are you with Jabur? Seven in the world really doesn't have much to defend through the first third of the season, given all the injuries she was dealing with. From that perspective, there is a runway for her to work her way back up the rankings. That said, was this the Jabur three-year window? Is this now where we see players like Muhava, Vondrosova, maybe players we talk, well, either the Noskovas of the world or some players we're going to get to a little bit later start surpassing her? Where are you with Ans coming out of the season? In some ways, she's already defied my admittedly very low expectations post-Wimbledon. I mean, the way that she 
played that match and ultimately lost that match was just a very, I would be surprised if we ever see Denise Richards ever again, sort of performance from Angebor. The real heads will know what I'm talking about, which is that the Chief <laughs> just did not show up and was so devastated and was still talking about how devastated she was in Cincinnati. You just felt like, damn, like this is going to take a very long time to emotionally recover. You're not young by, you know, traditional tennis definitions. You know, this, 29 this is curious. This is the peak of your career uh, for all intents and purposes. And you had a seemingly golden opportunity to, you were never playing better. You played a phenomenal semifinal against Sabalenka to win your first slam at Wimbledon a year after you made your first. I mean, it was just teed up and she, I've, it, I can't remember anybody whiffing that hard. I mean, even Yana Novotna managed to be up 4-1 in the third before she choked. I mean, Jabir didn't show up. And, you know, this is the last time I think we've seen this kind of performance was from Dinara Safina at the 2009 uh, French Open final against Kuznetsova. And we saw what happened with Safina shortly thereafter in that match was really never the same player uh, after that loss. That said, Jabir is continuing to fight and battle and win matches, certainly far more than I thought she would win uh, over the last couple of couple of weeks, was sick at the U.S. Open for everyone to see and was still winning matches despite being quite ill uh, for, uh, from what everyone could tell. And she certainly seemed sick during the post uh, on-court interviews and, you know, was sniffling from before the tournament and sick throughout the week and still managed to make the fourth round. And so... That kind of tenacity perhaps makes me think that this isn't a total lost cause, but I question whether we're going to see the the great heights that we started to see from her over the last 18 months. So I I guess stock down only because she set such a high bar. Yeah. Her fourth round run at Wimbledon was as impressive as they come, that there were three set victories tied into how visibly ill she was, and she still managed to win those so US Open again. Then. You at that? Yeah, sorry, U.S. Open. I'm not sure what I said, but you said Wimbledon. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to go on about Andrescu yeah. and all those. No, matches. <laughs> no, no. The Wimbledon. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Open fourth round, as impressive as they come, just given the form she was in to even make that sort of run and against again, good players. Yeah, round of 16 U.S. Open finals Wimbledon quarters French Open. She had a good year at the Slams, despite you know a Charleston title and then not much else anywhere else. A lot of that again due to injuries. Although Stuttgart semis, Cincy quarters, not bad results either. I feel like next year she finishes like 11th in the rankings where there's a little bit better result at the 500s, the 200s, just by virtue of her hopefully being healthier and playing more. Slam final, quarterfinal round of 16, that's a lot of wins at the majors. That's what, 13 wins right there, excluding Australia to have to match up to try and sustain that spot in the rankings. And again, I just do think there are some players coming up the rankings with the sort of power, the sort of weapons that can disrupt the rhythm of Jabir and make her uncomfortable. I also think there are players now, the Vondrusova, Muhova, Potapova class of the world that can kind of match her physicality and you know, again, make things interesting from that perspective as well in a way that this, that group didn't exist a year and a half ago. And so it's a very slight stock down. I still think she stays in that year-end race conversation. There's always turnover in a top 10. Someone's going to have to leave it next year. I think Jabir would be one of the players I'd circle to leave that top 10. I think her spots become available. I think she moves again to like 11 or 12, but I do think that's the spot that becomes available. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think maybe we see better non-slam results and maybe mm-hmm. slightly earlier slam exits. I mean, we even we don't even really even talk enough about the Roland Garros exit to Haddad Maya, where really mentally checked out of that that quarterfinal as well. I think lost a went down to double break 
in the third set of that match because she like thought that the serve was out and she like kicked the ball like <laughs> sort of like all the problems with with the Jabir game encapsulated in that one moment trying to entertain the crowd not realizing that the point was still live and you know, wanted to do a little soccer trick and whoops you're down five one in the third so like that's sort of where I feel like these big moments continue to elude her and I don't know if she's necessarily learned how to handle them but like you said I I don't I don't think given the way that the field looks right now I don't I don't see a calamitous tumble for her. I mean, she got she got to play Alicia Parks this week in Guadalajara hit 50 errors and didn't do that. So I mean, that's things like that will certainly keep her afloat. And you know, as Joe Conta famously would always say, she's continuing to get opportunities to succeed. And you know, she's experienced enough that she may take enough to maintain her spot in the rankings. All right. Well speaking of maintain spot in the rankings, Maria Sakari's next on the list. She's currently sitting at number nine. By the way, just from an ELO perspective, Anjabur right now seven in ELO as well as the rankings. Sakari's nine in the rankings. She's sixteenth in the ELO rankings. Now she will not face a seated player until the semifinal round of Guadalajara. She's gotta make the semis there, simply put you know, potential Garcia semifinal matchup or an Azarenka, whomever else comes out of that half. She should be the favorite. It's a massive opportunity for her this week that she kind of needs to capitalize. You look on, uh, capitalize on, you look for Sakari, 30 and 19 overall on the year. Third round loss in Australia to Julin. First round loss Roland Garros to Muhova. First round loss Wimbledon to Kostyuk. First round U.S. Open loss to Masarova. Now, there are some successes throughout the course of the season. Seven different quarterfinals overall. She made semis at Indian Wells. Finals in Washington. You know, semis in Madrid as well as Doha. You look for Maria Sakari right now in terms of the points race. She's currently sitting at 15th overall. So again, points, ELO, both lagging behind where she is in the rankings right now. Still has some points to defend down the home stretch of this season. Where are you with Sakari? Is that another top 10 spot you circle as certainly up for grabs? I mean, it has to be. That said, all she has to do is win four matches at the slams next year and she surpasses her total DK. I think, isn't it, if you win a second round at, if you make the second round of all four slams, that's the equivalent of like a 250 title. I think there's someone used to call it like the 250 slam. Um, I mean, look, things are in all likelihood going to get worse for Sakari before they get better. She's due to lose her WTA finals points where she went, Mm -hmm. you could believe it. I think she went undefeated in round robin play in Fort Worth last year. It was really looking like a lock to, um, to make the final of that tournament. I was surprised when she did not. I think she lost to Garcia um, in the semi. So interesting to see Garcia also coming back from the dead at Guadalajara. But I mean, again, a, another moment, another player in the midst of a moment where, you know, she's in tears after the U.S. Open, unsure how much she wants to keep playing, wants to maybe take a break. And she's back in Guadalajara and she's playing tennis again. And I, you always want question why, you know, you feel like obviously it's an emotional defeat, but, you know, maybe sometimes you should listen to your your instincts. If you feel like maybe you should stop for a little while, maybe you should stop. But, you know, she's someone who I think is instincts, you know, push her to keep playing. And, you know, when you list the losses like that, the, when you take them individually, they're not terrible. I mean, you think, oh, she lost to Mukova and the French and oh, Kostyuk's dangerous. And obviously we know Masarova's fairly talented and, you know, Julin has had a pretty good year, but that's sort of the totality of failure for Sakari, who again, talk about Jabura perhaps missing her moment. I mean, this is a player who made two slam semifinals in 2021 and has not really gotten close to that since. And so you wonder how many times those disappointments just pile up and stack up in your mind. She's someone who's aware of the chatter, perhaps to her 
uh, detriment on like a Coco Golf. She knows that everyone kind of has um, giggled about her semifinal record, about her finals record. The fact that she still only has one title despite being ranked as high as three. I don't think she's ever been ranked as high. I think she was almost two, but I think she ended up peaking at three. And you feel like when is the fall really going to come? And, and she's someone who perhaps unlike um, Shabor doesn't have the same consistent power of that's um, that's that Jabur has. And so you feel like that may, if she's really continuing to get more and more defensive and passive, that may things may start to really snowball quickly for her. And so I, I would say stock down more emphatically for her than if, you know, if Jabur finishes next year ranked 11th, I would expect to see Sakari perhaps even ranked 38th, 43rd. You know, I think it might, it might, it might get that bad before things get better if they get better. It's the first time in her career she hasn't improved her hold percentage. Now, she's still a top 15 server on the WTA Tour, but the break percentage is really stagnated, as has the game. You know, the big serve, the big forehands landing, Sakari's going to find success. When you can get her pushed into that backhand corner, when you can get her playing passively, defensively, tentatively, that's when she starts to struggle. And she's gone through backhand slice phases. She's gone through trying to pinch forward more phases. You kind of alluded to it. You just see someone who's searching for answers, seemingly at times. And again, she made a final in D.C. She beats Keys. She beats Pagula, you know, on her way to that final. Good win over an improving Layla Fernandez as well. Just has not been able to grab the big mo and ride a wave of momentum. That's why I think this week in Guadalajara would be so massive for her. Even if she doesn't win the title, a semifinal, a final at a 1,000-level event just to steady the ship. Don't wish another semi or final on her. Wish at least the title. No, but here I think it's a win because it would just be so desperately needed just to get something going from a rankings perspective. A little cache of points to help her protect everything that she has at the start of the year. It I mean, I guess it depends on what happens in yeah. those semis or finals. If she sure. loses to another player that she probably should beat or if she loses from a winning you, position If again. it's her versus Jabur in the final, who are you picking? Um, oh, boy. I, I guess Jabur. Because that's a potential final. I, I would say Jabur. I feel like Jabur is mentally stronger in these non-slam matches, for sure. Yeah, and I just think she can go about hurting Sakari in more ways than the alternative. But the physicality of Sakari in these Guadalajara conditions has stood out thus far. Like, she's the only one who can track down an extra ball because— And then playing at altitude, perhaps, that yeah. may—that's probably why she's, yeah, tended to succeed at this tournament in years past. Both last year making the final and then uh, at the WTA finals playing pretty, pre- playing pretty well. So we'll, we will see. But that draws, that draws interesting <laughs> yeah. for a WK one thousand. It's again, there are things to watch this week, even in the haze of the post slam part of the calendar. Last one of the rapid fire ish section, and then again, we're going quicker as we go through these names moving forward. Barbara Krachikova, title in San Diego after what was a miserable summer stretch for her second round loss at Wimbledon first round losses Cincinnati Cleveland US Open steadies the ship wins over Kalinina Haddad Maya Collins Kennan on her way to that title she has the San Diego 500 level title to the Dubai title she won earlier this year obviously you and I flirted with the conversation top four at one point what March it was pretty clearly in our mind Sviantek Sabalenka Rabakina Krachikova obviously that's not the case any longer however we doomed her didn't we yeah absolutely following her run she's now 10th in the rankings 14th in ELO ratings for what it's worth 12th in the points race where are you with her 
heading into 2024. Because again, it feels like Muhova Vondrosova have stolen the Czech shine. And yet again, she's got a slam title. She's won multiple big titles now for the past two years. Even in her struggles in 2022, she ends things with an Ostrava title, beating Sviantek in that final Dubai title this year. You know, now a, a solid title in San Diego to sort of get things going. She still does have that Ostrava title to defend. I don't know what to make of her, DK. What say you? I mean, confession, when you were just teeing up that intro, I kind of forgot she won a slam. In my head, I was <laughs> like, oh, Von Trusva is the only one of the three to win a slam. Recency bias, that's totally on me. I mean, gosh, I mean, she's it's like she's lived truly nine lives throughout this these last uh, two to three years from the pandemic to now to thinking that, you know, being upset that she was um, could, you know, not being considered top four, top three in the world, and then really falling off the wagon after that. And um, seemingly finally getting back into a rhythm. I mean, hers is a game with that extreme grip. You know, she needs, again, another player who needs a lot of confidence, but not someone who you would think would be as um, felled by injury the way that she the way that Amukova or Von Drusev have been. And yet, you know, Krejcikov has dealt with quite a few injuries uh, over the last uh, year or so, was, you know, ranked number two in the world last year and really couldn't play because um, because of the injuries that she had. And so, you know, I think we're in an interesting position with Krejcikova because, you know, it feels like she's lived about nine lives from when she won her slam, you know, dealing with the pandemic being, you know, before the pandemic, she was a double specialist. You know, now she's was considered to be one of the top three, four players in the world. And so... You know, what has she learned from the attempt and failure to compete with the best of the world, feeling like that she was putting so much pressure on herself to be among the game's best that it kind of consumed her. And I think perhaps, you know, Von Drusova is an example of that, where she can deal with pressure from others. It's the pressure that she was putting on herself that just became completely paralyzing. And so I think that was a similar situation for Krejcikova, I think she, you know, put a lot out there in terms of I'm the best in the I'm one of the best players in the world. And then I think when it came time to prove it, it really um, it really affected her. And I think maybe things are finally shifting into place. She's someone who, again, I think needs a good amount of confidence to play with that extreme grip forehands. And, you know, that's something that to always look out for. It's a, that's a shot as beautiful as it, as it is to watch. It is a shot that can break down. But, um, you know, some consistent results from her over the last couple of weeks, it's it's funny to think that she's kind of still in the hunt, you know, in a weird way, not totally out of the uh, the WTA finals discussion, much as she was at the bitter end of last year. You know, it feels like she's always playing catch up and hopefully she's able to put together a consistent season of good results from her from start to finish. I, I would say stock up because I feel like she said, again, she set a huge, a, quite a, a high ceiling, but the floor has been quite low for large stretches of the year. Which is so fascinating because I feel like I know her game so well. Like, she's a good, not great mover. The length on her ground strokes, very good. Power, not elite, but certainly can get some edge outside the ball. She's good moving forward, comfortable hitting the overhead. Great depth on the return. Great at setting up the plus one opportunities for herself on serve. Great at dictating at her own pace. Yet again, doesn't have that elite, elite power she make opponents uncomfortable. You know what you're getting out of Krejcikova, which is why that low floor, certain results where that just hasn't worked for her this season hasn't made sense for me. And yet again, when it does work, it can work extraordinarily well. There was a world where she, if she doesn't draw Sabalenka, she's making semifinals of one of Indian Wells in Miami. And then her spot in the top 10, probably much more certain than it would be right now. <sighs> 
I mean, again, someone has to leave the top 10 next season. And I don't think Iga is. I don't think Sabalenka is. Rabakina, no. Coco, no. The Pagula spot is interesting. I think Von Drusseva is a lock. Mukova, you you wonder about injuries. You know, again, is Krejcikova one of those players who maybe moves a, a spot or two up? just by virtue of being a little bit more consistent next season, which there are certainly pockets of points for her to do. I think I'm ever so slightly stock up for Krejcikova. I think this was the season where she was healthy for the majority of it, kind of riding the ship. Next season is where she gets back to where she should be in that 6 to 8, 9 range in the rankings. Ever so slight stock up for Barbara Krejcikova. Just because, again, I feel like I know who she is. We see her. We see each yeah, other. <laughs> exactly. I just – I get the game. Anyways, all right. Last three for you before we get to the honorable mention rapid fire section. These three again. I promise we're we've going been, to – We've been on the – we've been at the end of this list for a while, but go on. No. Ludmilla <laughs> Samsonova – no, no. These ones we're going to go faster through because I think they're pretty obvious stock ups for us. Ludmilla Samsonova, uh, 17 in the world right now. Obviously reached a career I have 12 earlier this season. Disappeared for a little bit. 26 and 20 overall on the year. But semis Washington, finals Montreal – Tough three-set loss at the U.S. Open to Madison Keys. I think you put her in prison for it in our group Ugh, chat, if memory serves correct. Yeah, Abu Dhabi finalist earlier this season. Second-round loss, Australia. Second-round loss, Roland Garros. First-round loss, Wimbledon. Third-round loss, U.S. Open. So there's ground right there to be picked up. I think we're both stock up on her, right? Like, you watched her play in Montreal and D.C., and you're like, yep, we're back. This thing's rocking and rolling again. She has that elite power. She can hang out at the country club. I'm still mad that she lost that match to Keys. I understand why Keys just has a superior weight of shot and was just playing very consistent tennis. I, I get it. I get it. That doesn't mean I have to like it, but I get it. Because I just feel like this was really a huge moment for Samsonova. And I weirdly, I feel like Samsonova wins that semifinal against Sabalenka. I don't think she chokes from a set in 5-3 up the way the Madison Keys did again. So I, that's sort of what frust- again, that's what frustrates me about the, the Keys conundrum is I feel like other players are perhaps more mentally ready for the later stages, but because they run into keys early, you know, that that ends up uh, flummoxing them. But I guess at the end of the day, you have to become the kind of player that can beat keys early and then, you know, make it all the way over the finish line. So perhaps it's all about being, I think uh, Marta Kostic's uh, mom used to say that, like only, only achieve results that are at your level, because if you overperform there, it's harder to back it up the next year. Like you always want to be improving a little bit at a time. Marta Kostic and, and family, very wise people. Um, but yeah, obviously stock up for for Samsonova. I just feel like it's it's got to happen. We're we're very we're we've, we're already overdue for the Samsonova slam run. Every time we get close to it, you feel like it's going to happen. I mean, I still think of the 2021 Wimbledon when she beat Sloane Stevens and then had Pliskova, and you felt like okay, this is a huge opportunity for Samsonova, and then it didn't happen. And so you feel like next year it's certainly you know barring cataclysmic disaster, it happens. Six and seven versus the top 20, three and five versus the top 10 in her last 52 weeks. She's 17th in the rankings, 19th in the points race, 13th by ELO rating. So I think all of us, analytics included, see Samsonova as someone who has the talent. I think she's reined in the return of serve, sometimes to her own detriment, because when she's at her most aggressive, swinging most freely, there are just times when she is untouchable. I think she is someone who could be on the fringes of that top 10 season next year, again, just by improving the slam results ever so slightly. Another one who belonged in the obvious stock buy list is Jung Chin Wen, 22 in the rankings, 12th according to ELO ratings. I'm going to frame this one like this because I know we're both stock buys. 
What's the one thing you want to see from her as we approach the start of the 2024 season? What will you be looking for in the first three months? A three-month stretch, by the way, where, yeah, she was great at the start of February, but she missed the sunshine swing. So there are serious points to be picked up. What do you want to see from her through the first third of the season? What's the litmus test for success for someone who we have long circled as a potential top 10 player? What do I want from Jung Chin Wen? I mean, I want her to be less nervous because evidently when she is nervous, um, it it yields some hitchy serves. It yields some hitchy forehands. And I think that's what Wim Fizet, her coach, was really honing in on the fact that when she's able to play freely the way that she did against Anjabor, for example, the, the, the serve looked pretty good and the forehand looked amazing. I mean, the forehand was still rather the first serve percentage was still low, very low. It was criminally low against um, both Shibor and Sabalenka. I mean, that's number one on the agenda. She needs to have a higher first serve percentage. She cannot be a big hitting baseliner and serving at 30%. Like that just can't, those two things don't work together. Um, she needs to be getting a big first serve and that sets her up for a plus one forehand. <laughs> the Coco Golf School of Success now, evidently. Um, so I definitely want to see a better first serve percentage, but I just want her to become more comfortable with herself because I think that for some reason she still feels a lot of anxiety on the court and that's not it's not productive and it's keeping her from playing her best tennis. So I think hopefully the more that she's with Fizette, the more that she gets used to just being on tour, that will hopefully sort itself out. But it is, it's, it's worrisome that the nerves are having such a technical impact on her game. You don't really, I mean, not since maybe like the dementia serve woes, you don't often hear about like nerves contributing to visible changes in one's technique. I mean, for the forehand to look so much better just because she's not nervous is, it's it's weird to me. Finals of Palermo, three sets with Iga and Cincy, quarterfinals of the US Open. It was exactly the summer we were asking for, for Chin Wen, who turns 21 this October and 29 and 17 overall. She's going to be a top 25 player at the end of the year, All are very likely to be a top 25 player at the end of the year. I think the forehand got better. I think the serve got better. She can move so well for someone who can generate power with such ease. I think her backhand slice even looks improved as well. A little off-speed thing for her to mix in with her relentless pace. When you're asking for a younger player to be more consistent week in, week out, and that's the only thing you can think to ask of of them, it speaks to how highly I think of her game. I think that's where we're at with Chin Wen. I think it's when, not if, we see her put together a healthy season from start to finish. She's in that top 15 conversation. I don't know the next time she will leave it from there. Last but not least, and I just put her on this list because I want to hear your thoughts on what has been a funky season for 22-year-old Anastasia Potapova, currently 26 in the rankings. DK, this one's all you. Stock up, stock down, stock hold. Give me your thoughts. I mean, it's tough because she gained a lot of points for the first four and a half months of the season and did not gain a ton of points thereafter. So it's it may be a situation again like um, – Sakari, where it gets worse before it gets better. I mean, she's not going to have a lot of opportunities to move up the rankings now until the French Open. I mean, she did not, hasn't performed great, you know, for lack of a better term, since since really Madrid, Rome, when she lost those two three-setters to Kudermatova. Um, and, you know, obviously ran into a Clara Towson at the US Open, which given the way that Towson performed in her second round match, you feel like, well, it's probably a match that Potapova should have figured out how to win. Um you know, losing to Emilia Arango um, in Guadalajara this week. That's a, I mean, talk about a golden opportunity missed. I mean, this is not a strong field by any stretch of the imagination in the WTA 1000 and you're, you're losing to perhaps the, 
seemingly by ranking the most gimme opponent, even in a weak field. I mean, it wasn't like she was playing a top 30, 40 opponent in the first round. She lost, you know, playing someone who is not that, you know, and, and Arango is certainly talented and has put together some good results in the past. This is not something that you would have expected from Potapova, who has been knocking on the door of the top 20 for most of the year, even in spite of some subpar results. And so, you know, I have to speak to her <laughs> perhaps to get a sense of why these um, last six months have not panned out the way that you would hope. Is it, you know, is it some more burnout? Is it some injuries? Obviously, you always have to monitor that ankle from her that she's had surgery on. Um, is it just, you know, a bit of pressure to feel like, you know, to be so close to the top 20 and to be like a win away a bunch of times and to not do it? That's got to be weighing on her. You know, had some really close losses, whether it was to... Um, Again, the two three setters to Kudamertova, the one against Jesse Pagula in Miami, a match that she really should have walked away with, had two match points and just did not serve well in those moments. You know, it's, but everything's kind of all there. It's as there as it's ever been. So you feel like, you know, maybe a stock hold. I don't, I don't see her perhaps taking a huge drop, but it's going to be hard for her to push forward in the first few four, four or five months of the year when she has so much to defend. All right. I love to hear it. Well, with that in mind, our final exercise on today's podcast. No explanations, DK. I'm going to run you through every name I considered. Otherwise, we're just straight up, stock up, stock down, stock hold. No explanation necessary. You ready to rapid fire? Yes, I love this. I love love fast and easy judgments. Benchich. Down. Hold. Wang Xinyu. 37 in the world. Hold. Okay, up, massive up. Marta Kostyuk, 42. Up? I mean, I feel like it's it can only go up. I don't I think agree. you're going down. Slight up. Peyton Stearns, 43. Yeah, up. I'm going to say hold. I feel like top 50 season for her is a winning season. She puts that together next year. I'm a hold. Navarro, 49. Hold. I agree. Hold for everything I said about Stearns. Now we get into the slightly more fun category. Those were, by the way, the DK cuts. For those curious, what were the names he didn't want to discuss at length? Uh, others considered. Pagula, four. I mean, again, I think that's it's similar to like she set such a high bar and yeah. she still hasn't cleared it. You feel like maybe a little bit down next year. I agree. Sell the six. Vondrusova takes her spot. Muhova, eight. Oh, gosh. Um, hold? Tentative hold, but... That one's tricky. Garcia, 11. Down. Yeah, I think you have to point there. Keys, 12. Hold? Yeah, that feels about right. Bozhkova, 30. Up. She was so close to be. I mean, she really should. I mean, I should say down just for the fact that she didn't beat Jabora at the U.S. Open because, again, that's another match that I'm angry went the wrong way because – Jabir was so sick and Busco was playing so well and should have figured that out in two sets and then ends up injuring herself in the third set of that match. I mean, just brutal all the way around. But I think, you know, has had, had some injuries at the, at the, you know, some inconsistencies at the start of the season that she seems to have largely figured out. And so I would say, you know, and she was, she's someone who unlike Potapova will have a lot of opportunities to gain early in the season. So I, I think hold top. She had a really bad year outside of Wimbledon and the U S open. So there's a lot of room for growth. And Cincy. Actually, it's yeah, good Cincy. Cincy thank you. Killed Pagula and Cincy. I think I'm selling. A little sell. Light sell. Either just it's tough. And last uh last two I didn't know I was podcasting with Miyukato, but okay. Kami Osorio sixty seven. I'm always buying Kami Osorio I know, stock. I, I am I am the majority stakeholder in Kami Osorio. Last one just because and we have this conversation every time you're on the show, so I didn't want to have her at length. 
Can you guess who I'm going to ask? Mm. No. <laughs> Andrescu 63. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like – it's like the gold standard. It's like not even like stock. It's just no. Like she's is- the stock. She's like the one. You're like, how's the market today? It's like I don't know. We're asking about Andrescu. I mean, gosh, do, do you remember when she won the U.S. Open in 2019? Because it's becoming harder and harder for me to remember that at this point. You know, it's you and I a- had never podcasted the last time she won the U.S. Open. No, I don't think we'd ever spoken. We, we had we had eyed each other in the Cincy press room, but we had never spoken. The, the, the sexual tension was palpable. I remember. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, gosh. Sell only because I feel like most people have a lot of excess on rescue stock, and maybe it's finally time to let some of it go. And you know, when she invariably wins the Australian Open out of nowhere, we'll go, ah, rats. <laughs> As they say in Pirates of the Caribbean, part of the ship, part of the crew. If I'm going down on the Andrescue ship, it's a ship worth going down on. I won't sell the stock on principle. I just won't do it. Part of the ship, part of the crew, DK. As they say on The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, fresh powder, fresh start. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a skiing town at Salt Lake City. <laughs> right, that's where we need to end things. Anything you have to plug before I let you go? Uh, 50th anniversary of Battle of the Sexes, everybody, which you won't be hearing until it comes out, which so may not be the 50th anniversary anymore, but that's happening. We're doing some coverage of that on Tennis.com, and we are the, going to be the primary, I think, rights holders for a Labor Cup. I should have read the press release more thoroughly, but I think most of the Labor Cup coverage will be on Tennis Channel over the weekend, so tune in for that. We'll be doing a lot of coverage for that both on Tennis.com and Baseline. Um, yeah, look forward to that. Yeah, follow him at DKTNNS on Twitter. All the different accounts, all the different articles posted there. A shout out to you. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, as well. What type of a job does he have to do, DK? He does. He could do an even better editing job. <laughs> and we gave him some stuff to have to work with today. So shout out to you, as always, Westhoff. And again, a shout out to all of you who tuned in. This is our game, Stock Up, Stocked Up. Stock up, stock up, stock up, stock up, stock up, stock down, stock hold for the fantastic DK, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Crack Records and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all next time. Thank you, as always, my friend. Dos vidania. Yeah.